Hello, everybody. Agape Fellowship welcomes you to another episode from Matthew's Gospel. We study the Word of God verse by verse, and we have been learning from the Beatitudes of Jesus. We have gone through the blessedness of being poor, meek, hungry, thirsty, and so on. There seem to be paradoxes, but are loaded with truth and blessing to anyone who seeks God. Let's continue with verse 7 as we conclude the Beatitudes in this episode. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now we've heard it say, what's the difference between justice, mercy, and grace? Anybody wants to go for that? What's justice? Getting what you deserve. What's mercy? Not getting what you deserve. <laughs> Not getting what you deserve. What's grace? Grace. Getting what you don't deserve. Getting what we don't deserve. Getting those you don't deserve, correct. By the way, getting is in the negative sense. You know, you you're not getting punished for what you you you're not getting that punishment, basically what he's saying. Let's read Matthew chapter 18, 21 to 35. It's a long portion, but it's very important for us to read that. And also let's keep whilst you're reading that, let's also look at Luke 10 and you see the portions in there, please. Pick that up. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Um, but Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what they had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you from his heart, if he does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So the servant, the first one, deserved to go to jail. He had a huge debt, but the master showed mercy. However, he did not have the heart to show the same mercy to one who owed him a lot less than that. 
when Peter asked about the number, by the way, this is on the side note, this is important. When Peter asked about the number of times Jesus, that one should forgive, Jesus answered, what you heard and what Jesus answered was what is in God's heart towards our sins and failures. Many times we think, will God forgive me this time? Look, if Jesus is going to tell Peter that you got to forgive 70 times seven, isn't Jesus talking from his own heart? Or does he have a different standard from what he's asking Peter to do? Of course not. What's God's heart is what he told Peter. What am I trying to say? There's pardon and forgiveness, unlimited forgiveness to the sinner who repents. There's pardon for the sinner who repents, not the unrepentant one. Please make a note. It's the repentant one. The one that came and asked repentance is the one that receives the pardon. In 1 John 1, 8 and 10, let me read that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So there are two parts to this. One is about that mercy. There's another aspect of it, which is, what we see here is God's heart towards us. Many times we think that, oh, you know what? I've committed a sin. I cannot approach him. No. If we confess our sins, he is righteous to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. Let's look also one more. Luke 10, 25 to 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is your written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said this to him, You have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. 
So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The Samaritan showed mercy. Samaritans were considered outcasts by the Jews and they were a despised lot. They were not even allowed to come. Remember that woman by the well? He said, well, how come you, a Jew, is speaking to us as Samaritans? Here was a despised man who technically, if he had wanted to, he's a Samaritan, that is, if he wanted to ignore this man, this Jew lying on the ground, half dead, he would be justified. He said, look, these guys don't like us. I don't even want to go close to him. Forget it. But what we saw here is a man, in spite of being literally rejected by society, rejected by the Jews, he is the one that goes and ban takes the Jew to the hotel or the hospital where we the inn, and pays the money to ensure that he is healthy, to bring him back to good health. He went out of the way. What he did was to show mercy. Now remember, every time that we read a parable about something, we are getting an insight into God's heart. Now he wouldn't tell us a parable if it was not his heart. While he's telling us a story, a moral story, and all these things, keep in mind that this is also God's heart, God's perspective, the forgiveness, the mercy, the Samaritan, he, when we were yet in our sins, Jesus died for us. When we were without strength, when we had no ability to, to rise up of our own, he came and died on the cross for us. That's called mercy. It's called grace. He showed grace. Let's read one more. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. For they shall obtain mercy. Notice what he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If you want, to, if you want mercy from others, especially God, then we should take care of being merciful to others. If some people wonder why God showed mercy, such grace and mercy to David. Is it possible? It is quite possible that God showed mercy just as David showed mercy to Saul. Remember that King David had innumerable opportunities to kill Saul. But David didn't. And so David 
when he fell into sin, God could have destroyed him. And God showed him mercy. Next. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's read Psalm 24, 3, and five, three to 5. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Purity of heart and clean hands. That's what it says. In, uh, in the New King James Version it says, He who has who may ascend the hill, into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place, he who has a clean hand and a pure heart, and who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. Purity of heart and a clean hand. And what does he receive from the Lord? In return, what does he receive? It says in verse 5, Blessings. And? I live in a holy hill. Right in, in, the, in the New Kings it says, Righteousness from the God of his salvation. Two things he will get. Blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. What is Christ Jesus telling us here? What is this purity of heart? What is he talking about? It's the sincerity, the integrity, the honesty, being absolutely, there is no double talk. Two aspects, moral purity, and second one is single undivided heart. Utterly sincere and not divided in the devotion or commitment to God. What's the opposite of a purity? What is that opposite? It's a double-mindedness. One day hot, the next day cold. The heart is not sincere. And neither is it honest to God. Luke 9. Can we read Luke 9, 57 to 62? Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me go first and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand into the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. If you're not following God because he is God, If we are Christians because of our perks, then our heart is not pure. 
our intentions are wrong. If our salvation is because I want to avoid hell, that is not a pure heart. And that is a heart that says, oh, you know what, I want to avoid hell and that's why I want to do this. The purity of heart is that which wants to reside with God, that has a desire for God because he's God and that's the number one purpose. If God is a means to my end, then my heart is not pure. God has to be the end of my means, end to my means. Then my heart is pure. We pursue God for the sake of God. We don't pursue God for the perks, for the benefits, for avoidance of hell or fear of hell. Those are not pure desires. That is what the scripture means by being pure in heart, sincere in that. Now, if I had that kind, if I did have that kind of a motive and I was sincere and said, God, change my motive. This is the way I think about it. Then you have a pure heart because you're not being fake with him. You're not a, a pseudo-Christian. You want him because he is God. He, he is your shield and your exceeding great reward. In him is your contentment. In him is your fulfillment. In him is your completion. In him you have wholeness. If those are your thoughts, then you're pure. But if it is for any other purpose, including hell avoidance, then it's a different matter altogether. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called. When the world thinks of peacemakers, it thinks of who? UN, Nobel Peace Prize winners, and people that espouse peace. However, God's view is very different on it. Let's read Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 to 21, 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and that has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
it's our responsibility in the ministry, even though our responsibility in the ministry may vary. You know, we do different things in the ministry. However, in the end of it all, we are the peacemakers that are sharing what God has done with the world. And he's saying, be reconciled with Christ. And through our ministry and through our work for the Lord, God is reconciling. That's what Paul tells us. God is reconciling the world with himself. Not imputing their trespass to them. In other words, not imputing their sin. And he's committed to us, what? The word of reconciliation. In other words, God has given us, each one of us, that responsibility to tell the world that God is reconciling us and now is the time for salvation. And for that, they shall be called the children of God. The reward for peacemakers is they are recognized as the true children of God. They share the passion for peace and reconciliation. They break down the walls between people. He's blessed by God, though the peacemaker may be ill-treated. He's blessed by God. He's blessed to be among the children of God, adopted into his family, surrounded by brothers and sisters through all the ages. And so, children of God. Then verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we would think that if we lived a life that Christ desired for us to live, that we would be looked upon as good people or God's people and so on. But here Jesus warns us and tells us that when you live this way as his people, God's people. You will be reviled. You will be persecuted. All kinds of false evil will be spread against you. But notice what he says in verse 11. It's for whose sake? Because you're God's own. For my sake. Notice in verse 11. You are being persecuted and you, all manner of evil is being set against you because of your relationship with Christ. If you did not have that relationship with Christ, you will be okay, no problem. You'll be creme de la creme. You'd be the, the toast of the town. Uh, you'd be perfectly fine. But the day that you make known that you have now become God's own and you go to wherever you are and within your family, within your society, within wherever you are, that would be the day that you would see the wrath and the ire of the world turned against you. He is now in this portion, he's reassuring us and also reminding us when these things come, don't think that something strange has happened. And he tells us, he commands us to do something else. What does he say? He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? 
for two reasons. For great is your reward in heaven. And take comfort in the fact that even you are not alone in this thing. They did the same to all the prophets before you. And there's an example in, um, in the book of Acts chapter 5. You remember the portion where Peter and John, they walk into the temple. And this man is by the temple, uh, I mean by the temple gate called Beautiful. And then Peter raises him up and then he is an invalid. And then he suddenly starts to leap and dance for joy and all of that. You remember that, right? So in that portion at the end, the Sanhedrin calls them in and says, don't you dare speak in Jesus' name. And so Peter has this debate and argument and says, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. And here's what, how it reads at the end. Uh, the, uh, let me just read that portion. And they agreed with him. And when they had called, meaning that this is the Sanhedrin, they had agreed in, internally. And then they had called the apostles in and they beaten them. And they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council and rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame in his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Notice they, that's Peter and John and the apostles, they counted themselves worthy to suffer shame for his name. An example too is Stephen. He reminded them and he said, which of the prophets did you not kill? And guess what they did to him? Did he do anything wrong other than say, look, you did this wrong? Was that worthy of his murder? but they murdered him. Stephen was promptly put to death. Let's wrap tonight's study by reading Hebrews chapter 11, 34 to 40. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trials of mocking and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us.
This is a portion about the prophets in the Old Testament period. There's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you haven't read it, you can probably look up online. It talks about how the early Christians and many, many, many Christians were persecuted and killed and murdered. So it is not unusual. It is common. And we've become the cannery in the mine. As the culture degrades, you saw, you know, in the Roman Empire that Christians were set on fire on the Appian Way to light the highway. Um, thankfully, that's not happening, but you saw even in the Middle East. And you're seeing now it is coming to, to the U.S. also, where we have now been sidelined we are now being put to the side and there is more coming. In other parts of the world, Christians are persecuted. They're being destroyed. In Africa, it's a common theme every day. They're being slaughtered. You remember the time when 21 of the, uh, the Coptic Christians were taken to the Mediterranean Sea and their heads hacked off? Why? Only one thing, they stood for faith. They stood for God. And just their being, just being a Christian causes ire because you reflect, we as Christians reflect a moral standard. And they don't want moral standards. They want away with the morality. Now, if we did not have the moral standard, they couldn't care less. If you did whatever you wanted to do and you, it did not matter to you, then the world would not worry about it at all because you did not stand for anything. You could have a happy life, meaning the wealth of the, you know, of everything that you get and prosperity and everything. But if you were a Christian and you stood for something, then whether you're in the church or you are in the family or you are in the community or in the society or wherever, in the country, wherever you are, you represent a moral yardstick and that they do not want. And so you will be marked and labeled for destruction and what does Jesus say look he's talking he was talking back then but it's relevant even to this day he's saying as he closes out the Beatitudes he says he didn't say don't worry I'll take care of you he didn't say I will comfort you he said what did he say he said rejoice be exceedingly glad and he says, look, when these things happen, be glad and great is your reward in heaven. For they persecuted this prophets before you. And that's what we read from uh, Hebrews 11, how the prophets were destroyed and persecuted and killed. Well, Anil. Please go ahead. I was thinking, you know, like Paul knew what it was like to be a persecutor. Mm -hmm. He knew what it was like to be on the other side. He did the persecuting, yes. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, he knew, he knew, but I don't think that he was an immoral person. 
right? So well, I don't know that, that applies to to in, every case. Well, what was the, what were they standing for? Uh, what was Paul standing for? He was standing for a certain set of principles that were Pharisaic, right? And here was Jesus and the morality that Jesus came brought. And what did he say? Oh, that was it was antithetical to the Jewish tradition. Right. So I, I think it's no, not so much the morals, but the, but the ultimate authority of God that we represent. Because in the end, we, yes. In the end, I mean, looking at us as, because they know there's something different in us that, that, that intimidates them because it's the, the authority of God himself. There is some, well, that's, it translates to them as a, a, an authority, a moral authority. Yeah. Isn't it? In the end, it translates into you stand for something. Right. And I cannot have you stand for something. And, you know, I, I have had a feeling that all of this in the news about defund the police hmm. is something very similar. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want the police because we don't want to be told what to do. Right. Yeah. We don't want consequences for our actions. Right. And it seems like a very similar type of thing and maybe a precursor yes. to what may be coming. What may be coming. There's more when the morality is taken away. Because morals means there's a moral lawgiver behind it. There's a yardstick between black and white. There's a, there's a clear right and wrong. And so you cannot, they don't want that. So the, the yardstick, the morality, po points to a moral lawgiver and the yardstick. Now, this is the unique thing about the Christian ethos is that we, we all believe that the law came from outside of us. That all of us, no matter who we are, from the greatest person on the earth to the, the lowliest of them, we are all outside of the law and we are aspiring to that law or to that um, God's grace. And they do not want to know that there was, and this is how it was in the days of Noah, and it's going to get closer. As we get closer, we're going to see that. It's, we're going to get closer to the days of Noah when there was no right and wrong. You could do anything you wanted. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about it. Right was wrong, wrong was right. You could do anything you want. And when we come in and say, no, that's wrong. The first thing they'll do is, well, don't be judgmental. Another thing they will say is, who are you to, you yourself are a sinner, then how dare you speak about it? But for the Christian, it's like, yes, I'm aspiring for that. Aspiring to be right with God. And so we close the Beatitudes with this in a sense, it's a warning, it's, a, it's an encouragement. In a way, it's also saying what's coming in our lives also. Where um, persecution will come, but we are called. And in the, you will see immediately, we'll close up tonight, but you will see next time that the next verse you will see 
and he talks about salt and light. God remembers the merciful, accepts a person who sincerely seeks him, and calls peacemakers sons of God. Jesus talks of true worship here, the hallmarks of a true child of God. However, the more we draw to Jesus, the world may hate us and hurt us. Come what may, let us decide to follow Jesus. With this, we come to the ends of the Beatitudes. Thank you, and hope you were blessed by this study. Do join us in the next episode as we continue with the Sermon on the Mount. God bless.